This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to I Love You But I Hate Your Politics. I'm Dr. Jeannie Safer. I think it's safe to say that the political climate these days is a bit heated. There's no such thing as civil disagreement. Politicians and commentators just yell at each other, language we never expected to hear from adults, let alone from public figures, has become commonplace. No matter what's going on around you, political fights don't have to destroy your close relationships. I'm here to tell you that it is possible to heal divides, disagree civilly, and make things work. And we'll show you how to do it. That's what this podcast is for. This week, for our first episode, We'll meet John Avalon and Margaret Hoover. Margaret is as partisan a Republican as it's possible to be. She's the great-granddaughter of President Herbert Hoover, whom the Democrats blamed for the Great Depression, something her family has never forgiven or forgotten. When she was growing up and an appliance broke in her house, someone always said, It's gone Democratic on me. John, on the other hand, is a third-generation descendant of Greek immigrants who believes in reconciliation. He thinks that political partisanship, like his wife's, is actually a big problem for the country. And yet, they've been married for almost nine years. If you're a fan of political television these days, you've probably heard of John and Margaret. They appear on CNN often, separately and together, they even disagree on the air, but with respect and humor that are incredibly rare these days. Joining us now to discuss John Avalon and CNN political commentator Margaret Hoover, who I think know each other. <laughs> like but, most uh, Americans, we disagree. Uh, something that is an offensive fact to my husband. <laughs> Dinner conversation. I disagree fun. with here. Margaret, your lesser half is saying, let your freak flag fly if you're a Senate <laughs> Republican. What's your response? Uh, you know, my bride and I disagree on a lot. I hate it when he's Margaret right. We applaud your marriage. Thank you for weighing in. So how did this husband and wife duo of friendly rivals, who agree on almost nothing politically, ever meet and fall in love in the first place? We met, we think, on July 24th. <laughs> you think? <laughs> we, we've tried to go down and make sure we know the exact date, and we think it was between July 22nd and July 26th, 2006, when I came to New York to interview for a job working for the Political Action Committee to support the p possible Presidential Exploratory Committee of the possible presidential run of Rudy Giuliani mm -hmm. in 2008. Mm -hmm. That was a long time ago. It feels that way. <laughs> Margaret was just coming off a stint working in the White House under George W. Bush. John had served for years as Giuliani's chief speechwriter and director of policy and played a similar role in the New York mayor's 2008 run for president. 
one of her friends who'd already joined the team said, "Oh, I met the, you know this is the girl you're going to marry." Wow. Did one of those. Yeah, no, no. Before you, before, before we met, we met. when before I was interviewing, she said, "Careful about who I'm bringing up. She's the kind of girl you're going to marry." Yeah, and I remember seeing her, and she walked into the room, and she was sort of dressed up for an interview, and. Uh, it was summer, but I recall it was sort of a, a whitish pink dress. Or you came down the hall or some, something, but I remember sort of seeing you for the first time and being introduced to you and, and being like, oh, I just remember like you were very attractive and you were, had this energy about you. And I just remember being like, oh, wow, hi. I remember thinking very quickly this distinct phrase, which, uh, I, <laughs> uh, that's a capable woman. <laughs> I remember oh, being really impressed sexy. about that. There's, she's it, not sexy. She's not hot. She's capable. No, I remember. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that's the sexiest thing a man could say. I actually meant that as an, an attractive way, as like a really attractive quality. And then I remember distinctly being like, I can't sleep with someone I work with. I can't sleep with someone I work with. <laughs> that was the next thought in your head. Yeah. No, I was like, I, I was just. Like, you feel better now, Mark. Like a 28-year-old man. Eventually, Hoover was hired by the Giuliani campaign. And, of course, she and John got to know each other. Margaret became even more familiar with John's book, Independent Nation, which was released a couple years prior. In that book, he made the case that the greatest political achievements in American history came from independents and centrists, not from strict adherence to one party over the other. I just thought, this is such bogus. Inde what do you mean, independent nation? I mean, I had been, I was working at the White House. I had worked for Karl Rove. I was um, really in as, as partisan of a place you could be in. Uh, anybody who thought that, you know, America had a tradition of independence or not being Republican or Democrat was that batty. I marked up his book. I thought it was all wrong. I have notes in the margin. I just thought, and then, but it's really funny. Also, the notes mar margin notes are literally like, wrong. And then their places are like, maybe he's onto something. To Margaret at the time, John's drive to find a common ground between two opposing sides was inexplicable. But to John, it was simply a natural instinct, present for as long as he can remember, an essential part of his personality with roots in his childhood experience. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an American mutt, uh, as, as we all ultimately are, uh, as a nation of immigrants. My grandparents were immigrants. Um, three quarters uh, from Greece. My folks are very happily married, but they fought when I was a kid sometimes. And I do think that Every I, as the eldest child, felt an obligation <laughs> to try to reconcile it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that that is... It was good training. It's good, well, but yeah, but again, it was not a dysfunctional or especially Nobody fighting Nobody is saying your parents had a dysfunctional marriage. Then they don't. But Every... Pa parents argue when they have small children. You and yeah. I know that. We have small children. And so I guess, you know, it, you know, I guess there are a bunch of different ways to respond to that, but my yes. way to respond to it was to try to reconcile. And but you took a role with them about yeah, that. And some children close their ears, some right, children take some, sides. You know, you know, you know, there's all kinds of ways to do that. Dig a hole in the ground, that. learn how to play guitar. Right. So I think that probably explains a lot about sort of a diplomatic streak in my personality and something about my politics in terms of, you know, we need to find common ground. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all part of the same family. I was always an independent. I was always a centrist. Everyone else was sort of you know, looked slightly sideways at that. 
it's what's hurting our country. You know, you should be able to care about politics and not buy into a hyper-partisan or ideological agenda. That, you know, that's the substance of what it means to believe there's more than unites us than divides us. And the parties have forgotten that they are not the purpose of our politics. And so when people come to the debate with a very tribal identity or ideological identity, that's the opposite of what I'm <laughs> trying to achieve in my columns right. before I rejoin the campaign in my book, Independent Nation. And it was just a very different frame of reference from sort of the conventional wisdom in Washington. And if anyone in John's orbit in 2006 summed up the conventional wisdom in Washington, it was Margaret. When you descended from Herbert Hoover, fierce loyalty to the Republican Party is practically genetic. Hoover was personally held responsible by his political opponents, not just during the time he was president, but for many, many years after that. I mean, FDR continued to personalize economic hard times in a way against Herbert Hoover. Well, it's and so convenient, isn't it? It, it, it is very politically convenient. Guy? Right. You continue to blame your successor, and many presidents have blamed their predecessors uh, for the, the problems they inherited. That's not a new problem, but because this problem was legitimately bad yes. and, and painful and harmful to, to people's livelihoods, the continued blaming of Herbert Hoover and personalization of that economic calamity to him actually had a real ripple effect on the psychology of the Hoover family. Family loyalty and pride, and outrage at the other side, were in the air Margaret breathed growing up. She saw firsthand the damage, the despair and humiliation her family had suffered. This understandable prejudice extended to the entire Democratic Party, even after FDR's demise. And so we hated FDR, and I still do, by the way, because FDR actually made real choices that really harmed my family for well, multiple generations. Feel that way. I think if my dad lived in New York City, he probably wouldn't refer to the, the drive as the FDR drive. <laughs> well, the East River Drive, no. Don't. He would just call it the East River Drive. I mean, um, I, you know, I'm four generations removed, well, so I can call it the FDR and well, just but, only be vaguely aware that it's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but the, and the irony there is that Herbert Hoover always said, you know, some of his best friends were Democrat. Joe Kennedy was one of his best friends. Harry Truman was one this of his isn't best friends. Logical or kinds of stuff. I mean, Hoover, you know, had really lived in this defensive crouch. Everything that was a negative criticism of Republicans that I didn't necessarily agree with felt like a deeply personal attack. So for Margaret, the political could hardly have been more personal. But for John... I I, uh, came from a perspective that the, the personal should never be political, but also really enjoying political debate, and I came at it from the perspective of wanting to win them which is also not the most, you know, loving thing you can do in the context of a relationship, but it's something we both do. You know, people grow up in a, at a kitchen table or a dining room table where there's a lot of banter and back and forth and somebody's going to win. And in the house that I grew up in, there was only one view that Everybody won. was united. Right. It took a very long time to get to a place where we could, quote-unquote, assume best intentions. I say, quote-unquote, because that's his language. But, like, you have to assume that the person you love, that you've, like, decided to have a life with, is not coming to the fight with knives. For Margaret and John, moving forward meant what it does for most other couples introducing the families into the equation. It was clear that on Margaret's side, patience would be required. It took a while for them to take him seriously, but I think at the end, um, they saw somebody who loved me and would be devoted to me, and they just decided to leave his politics as a question mark. But what was funny is, I mean, here, 
I'm working for Rudy Giuliani. I've been a speechwriter during 9-11. I wasn't actually a Democrat. I was just an independent. Oh, it didn't matter. And there was still marrying outside the political faith. But, But in fairness, you know, Margaret's family came by it really honestly. Do you think if you had been a Democrat, they would have come through for you? Yeah, I think ultimately think it wouldn't so, have been their I fault. I think it was the same thing. I think being an independent <laughs> or a Democrat was the same I thing. Yeah, because funny. he wasn't a Republican. Uh-huh. And he so said, which means he wasn't in the tribe. The last step from Margaret was convincing herself. I recognize that the person I knew I wanted to marry, that was the best man I'd ever met in my life, that I absolutely wanted to spend my life with, I knew appreciated me and appreciated Herbert Hoover and appreciated my family history, independent of carrying the label of Republican. That's a very important And it was a really, it was, it was hard to kind of untangle all of it. It was a risk. It really felt like a risk, but I also felt like the downside is I lose the best man I've ever met. Absolutely. And why would I want to do that? And that is more, that is better for me. And it was like, okay, so I could stick with my old belief system and lose him, or I could sort of shed it and and take a leap of faith and still have him and see what happened. I sort of led by feel, and what I felt was, I can take this leap of faith. But that leap of faith was nearly derailed by, you guessed it, a political argument. One with a particular controversial person at its center. You can't blink. You have to be wired in a way of being so committed to the mission, the mission that we're on, reform of this country and victory in the war. You can't blink. So I didn't blink then even. We're going to do what we have to do to protect the United States of America. You can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska. Unfortunately, that is the road that America may find itself on. Coming up, Margaret takes the big step of introducing John to her tribe. But an unlikely intruder nearly upends everything. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's rewind to 2008. John McCain is the Republican nominee for president, and he's running against a young up-and-comer, Barack Obama. Obama chose the well-known veteran Senator Joe Biden as his running mate. McCain chose Sarah Palin, the first-term governor of Alaska, a divisive figure, to put it mildly. Her selection sparked a debate among just about everybody in the political sphere, including, of course, John and Margaret. She was consciously trying to divide people instead of unite them. She was not appealing to the better angels of our nature. She was she was doing conservative populism uh, early on that we saw later in Donald Trump, and it's a divisive, dumbing-down force for our country. 
Marty. So there. <laughs> my, what do you really think? Yeah, but but again, like this isn't. I mean, I can tell you what my political argument was at the time, and I'll recite that for you. I mean, my art. I remember very clearly making this argument. Like, I I fully appreciate that you. She doesn't have a PhD in any kind of foreign policy. Um, I fully appreciate that you know she's been a governor of a small state, and you don't think that that's qualified enough, but. My view was that she had enough common sense to be in the situation room. I just thought, like, she's she's Dick Cheney on 9-11. She's in the situation room. She's been hauled down to the bottom of the White House. Another plane hits another place. Another plane hits the Pentagon. She's given options. Is she going to, as a thinking person, who we've seen kind of how she thinks and how she deliberates, because she's had a term as a governor, and, you know, the kind of decision points that she's had, is she going to make responsible choices in those critical moments? And also, like, will she get up to speed as Mm -hmm. vice president? Will she be serious? Will she buckle down? And does she have the capacity to learn? And Mm -hmm. will she, um, you know, make responsible decisions? And my view was... You know, she's she said yes. She signed up for it. She's serious. She wants to do this, and like, you know, I I think that she'll be able to do that. And that was my calculation at that time. John's opposition to the appointment remained so much so that he committed to vote for Barack Obama, a Democrat, over John McCain, a Republican. And here we have the basis for the argument that nearly destroyed John and Margaret's relationship even after two years together, and just as they were on the verge of getting engaged. John had already bought the ring. Uh, I remember we were walking uh, around Gramercy Park. We had this big blowout fight about Sarah Palin. Uh, which in retrospect is totally hilarious, and that also I think it reminds doesn't, us It all. doesn't sound great. I'm, I'm, I just want all of the listeners to appreciate <laughs> what a strong person I am for being able to reveal this weakness that I have I'm in the past. Because, because it's, I mean, it's like I'm only doing this for you, Jean, so that you and your listeners can benefit like and learn from this experience. What? Because this it's really, it doesn't look good on does. me. It's not a good look. that John had a different perspective on politics, um, but I truly didn't and couldn't embrace or accept that he wouldn't vote for a Republican for president. I mean, we met working for Rudy Giuliani, and John McCain was on the cover of his first book, and John McCain was a nominee in 2008, and I thought, how on (laughs) earth could he not vote for John McCain? And the answer is Sarah Palin, because I genuinely love and revere and respect John McCain. but it was very much the 2000 campaign John McCain, who I would have worked for and celebrated, and I think American history would have been incredibly different had he won for the better. But but Palin was this sort of nod to the nativist and the conservative populism, which Donald Trump has, has adopted. And, and that, to me, was a deal breaker, particularly in the face of Barack Obama, who was really running people forget uh, a very postpartisan campaign mm-hmm. in terms of his framing. He was about transcending the old divisions of black and white as well as left and right. And, and so that was really inspiring. And it was tough for me because these are two great nominees from my perspective, mm-hmm. two of the best we've ever had. But w- when he nominated Sarah Palin... <laughs> I just rolled my eyes for the people I, I listening. Just, I just saw an eye roll. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but nominating Sarah Palin was a deal-breaker for me. And that was nearly a deal-breaker for Margaret. And it was really like... A, come to Jesus about, uh, I can't believe you don't like Sarah Palin, which really became, I can't believe you're not going to vote for John McCain, to, I can't believe, you know, you're not going to vote Republican, and can I really marry a Republican? Crisis of faith. Fairly public meltdown. I know, this might sound absurd, 
From our current perspective, Sarah Palin's nomination, or anybody's, seems hardly something worth canceling a marriage of people who were meant to be together. But remember Margaret's family. Remember the environment she grew up in. At the time, it seemed like a betrayal of everything she held dear. Because there was not dissent tolerated in the family structure that I came from, in the context of Right. politics and political sort of thinking, I didn't how know could how I dissent? could, it how been... could I marry somebody who wasn't going to vote for a Republican? That was, seemed like a very big thing for me. It seemed like a very big question. It was like marrying outside of my religion. Of course. Eventually, though, John and Margaret took a step back. And when they did, something fundamental about their argument became clear. It was not really about Sarah Palin. Psychological insight. What is the most cliche thing people say about fights with loved ones? We don't even remember what it's about, or if you do, it seems so small that's right. and insignificant. But obviously that's because it's usually about something bigger. The trigger is Sarah Palin. How can I not like Sarah Palin? How can I not vote for John McCain? Yeah. The answer is quite easily, I can't vote for Sarah Palin or like Sarah Palin. But that is really about but rejecting her and her family and her identity. And, and so that's a very, right. And so that's a serious debate yes. beneath the absurdity. But of course, at the time, I was a little bit focused on the, we're really possibly going to break up over Sarah Palin? This is absurd. And it was absurd, which may be at least part of why it did not happen. Margaret and John differ in many ways, but they share something we can all learn from an empathic way of dealing with each other that makes it easier to overlook superficial issues that come up in political fights. And that includes thinking about themselves and their own contributions. It's important to know, though, this type of thing doesn't just happen naturally. It's been worked on and honed over many years. And these days, Margaret and John are reaping the benefits. Sarah Palin is long gone from the American stage. But John and Margaret's relationship is very much alive. This is our story on a really nuclear level, but there's something to extrapolate for everyone. Like, this is the kind of healing, I think, or the kind of trusting, taking on faith that they're coming with good intentions. Even if they disagree with you. Nope. That's the ones the who disagree with you That's are trying. Point. You know, even sort of progressive radicals who are, who are friends of mine, who I look forward to engaging, I know that they're doing it because they care. Right? There's, mm -hmm. And to sort of approach their perspective with empathy. Um, yeah. Empathy is the real it, central issue in all of this, it, in these relationships, either personal relationships or professional relationships, when you can feel that people, their heart's in the right place and their head is maybe in a different place than yours, right. but still you can and, talk and, about and, things. And trying to find areas of common humanity and focusing on appreciation of the other person. And I think where it quickly devolves is when people do default to a tribal identity because that's inherently oppositional. And defusing that interpersonal time bomb is tricky. It's difficult. I mean, you know, one of the, the lines Margaret's heard me use too much, but, you know, is that democracy depends on an assumption of goodwill. And we should assume... Good intentions. That does not mean there will always be evidence of good intentions. And sometimes it's hard, for yeah. instance, in the present moment, where there's Absolutely. such a divide. The pair also believes that reframing how you view politics can go a long way in helping your relations with others you disagree with. 
you can't have a family, you can't have a community, and you can't have a country if you don't have people that you love and connect with and trust. Yeah, and, then and I, that's the first piece of every human relationship. I also think we've utterly screwed up the definition of what politics is supposed to be in a civil society in our relationships. Politics is not supposed to be tribal identities clashing. It is supposed to be debates and disagreements Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle, as Jefferson said. And we've confused the two, and that's what's making things so toxic. I think the reason that people respond when we're on air together on CNN is that um, it gives them hope to see people be able to disagree agreeably with love as the firm foundation, even when there's, you know, disagreements. And the reality is, is that we don't often disagree at the end of the day. We come at things from different perspectives, but we often end up at the same place. Not always. Yeah, there's this lovely tweet. One of our colleagues from CNN, Abby Phillips, tweeted out, oh. I want to find myself a man who looks at me the way John Avon looks at Margaret Hoover. And oh she boy. took a snapshot. I had like pursed lips and I was trying to make a point. I was being very serious. <laughs> and my husband was like very sweetly looking at me admiringly. And I'm sure I went on to you know make a point that was very different than the point he made. Honestly, the thing that's most important is in life, really, is our relationships. And that will never go democratic on you. I Love You But I Hate Your Politics is produced by Alexander Abnos, with editing help from Katie Ferguson and Becky Celestina. The senior editor of Macmillan Podcasts is Alyssa Martino. For more information on this and all of Macmillan's other great shows, head to macmillanpodcasts.com. Want more stories about political disagreements? The I Love You But I Hate Your Politics book will be out spring 2019 on All Points Books. Catered to the better. Sarah Palin, Donald Trump. What she like better? Oh, God. gun to the head. Which is it? Okay, so neither. Uh, neither. I choose. I false. False choice. Well, here we are, America. Here we are. So, but that's not my fault. <laughs> anyway, so and it's not yours either.